This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This is America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Jeff Begays, filling in for Gil Gross. On this episode of America Changed Forever, it is the housing market that has changed during this pandemic. Changed at least for the foreseeable future. We want a house. I mean, that's the smart decision to make. Is now the time to spend that money you've been saving up for the dream wedding on that dream house instead? We want to start a family soon. We need more space. There's actually a Netflix show about that called Marriage or Mortgage. If we buy a house, it could be years before we can afford the wedding we've always wanted. We could do both. No, we can't. What would you do? And is now really the time to buy... Wait until you hear what our experts are saying, or maybe you plan on renting for a while. Right now, there are millions of people struggling to pay rent because they lost their job during the pandemic, or perhaps they've been hit by some other hardship. Just this week, a federal judge struck down a moratorium on evictions. The Biden administration will appeal, but what does that mean in the short term? I see this as a battle between landlords and their tenants. How much do you owe in rent right now? Close to $20,000. It's a tough deal right now for landlords. We need to get somebody in there that can pay the rents and keep the banks from wanting to foreclose on it because the banks need to get paid. That is where we will begin with New York Times reporter Glenn Thrush. So what is happening next? Well, this moratorium on evictions, which is one of the few things that Joe Biden and Donald Trump agreed on in 2020, which was freezing evictions pending the easing of the pandemic and roughly 45 billion with a B uh, dollars in federal aid, um, they both agreed to, to freeze evictions first through the end of the year, then Trump extended it into the year, and then Biden finally extended this uh, evictions moratorium through June 30th. The weird part about this has always been is the moratorium is administered by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, which last time I checked doesn't have an H at the end saying housing. So the reason why they use the CDC as the mechanism for doing this is simple. Public health law Uh, the public health law of 1944, to be exact, gives the federal government broad latitude uh, to impose quarantines and other actions in order to deal with the pandemic. And this was the best legal hook they had. So the moratorium was always pegged on this very tenuous legal argument. And frankly, they were just hoping to get to the end without it being successfully challenged. And at the moment, it seems like they almost made it out the door, but not quite. All right. So it was this moratorium was extended until June 30th by the Biden administration. 
And so between now and then, what, they're going to be in court hashing this out? To make things even more complicated, the judge who struck this law down, uh, struck the moratorium down, I should say, um, gave uh, the administration essentially ten, a 10-day stay um, to get its legal arguments together, to argue, to argue for a longer stay. Really, the goal here for the Biden administration, it's kind of like um, a basketball team protecting a lead in the fourth quarter. They want to run out the clock. Whether they're going to be able to do so is not all that clear. But the thing that's really interesting about it is the moratorium itself has been pretty successful. Uh, an estimated 1.55 million tenants who might have been evicted in a normal year, non-pandemic year, were not evicted as a result of this freeze, which has really helped tenants. But it's been enforced more rigorously in some areas, not surprisingly in blue states, not surprisingly in large cities, uh, and not so vigorously enforced in, in other places. Uh, and as we're moving on through the crisis, more people are getting vaccinated. The legal justification for doing this, which is essentially you can't if you have mass evictions in the middle of a pandemic, you have a lot of people moving around spreading the virus. That was the legal justification for this. As the vaccinations are taking hold, as the, the virus knockwood is receding, um, the justification for this is slipping. And what people have been seeing in housing court are more and more evictions taking place. So what's really going on here is we're moving from this very unusual situation where there were no evictions back to something approaching normalcy. The question now is, will we see this kind of as a dam bursting thing in the fall and winter um, where you just see an unprecedented number of pent up uh, evictions? Or will all this federal aid kind of ease that and we'll see evictions maybe either go back to its their former levels or even less? But there are also all these conflicting court rulings. Yeah, it is a crazy Wild West kind of situation. And to to make it, we could be here for two hours and I wouldn't be able to explain this properly, but I'll, I will make an attempt to do it in 30 seconds. <laughs> okay, thank yeah, you. Housing housing courts are run by local, local uh, judges, state judges to be exact. I used to cover housing court in New York City. The decisions on evictions are highly subjective. They bring in a number of factors. The quality of the landlord. Does the landlord have a ton of violations? If they're a lousy landlord, a judge will be less likely uh, to go for an eviction. Same thing applies to the tenant. Has the tenant had, you know, has the tenant had a, had violations of their lease? Have they been, you know, caught doing bad things in their apartment? Um the other thing are local regulations. We saw New York extend its eviction moratorium until, I believe, September of this year. So the federal law, while this isn't like the Supreme Court ruling and then that's it, the federal law, these rulings, and there are now four rulings against the moratorium and two rulings in favor, are more in the way of advisory opinions. So they are influential in this particular decision was more grounded in a larger legal argument pertaining to nation, to sort of the nationwide moratorium. So it's not nothing, but local and state housing court judges have this as a factor, one of many in making this decision, maybe not even the dominant factor. 
And this executive order signed by former President Trump covers any single renter making below $99,000 a year. Yeah, the way it initially came about was the first moratorium was passed during the, the first pandemic relief bill a year ago. And that one really applied to, to low-income people in federally subsidized housing. The thing that Trump did in the middle of the campaign, which is pretty extraordinary, I covered him in New York when he was a developer, considering that he's a landlord, there wasn't much of a fuss in the White House. He expanded it to include every single tenant who made, again, individuals 99K, families twice as much, which is an enormous number of people in the tens of millions. But the subset that's most important are the ones who are, according to the Census Bureau, behind in their rental payments or have been behind in their rental payments over the last year. And that number is more in the eight to 10 million. So you're looking at a subset of about eight to 10 million who have had some distress. And to be honest with you, a much smaller subset who have gotten into such hot water that they are, they are uh, going to be taken to housing court by their landlords. So if you have, uh, I don't know, eight, 8.2 million tenants reporting that they have fallen behind on their rent during the pandemic is what you've reported. Um, what are the landlords doing to make up for that deficit? The people who are ultimately getting all of this federal money, about $45 billion, which is, by the way, more than the annual budget of the Department of Housing and Urban Development. We've never seen money like this uh, being thrown at this. That money is going to landlords. The question is, how quickly can it get out the door? And as my colleague Jason DeParle has reported, um, it's taken quite some time to get the cash going. The Department of Housing and Urban Development, uh, who are cutting the checks, were gutted under the Trump administration. So a, a lot can happen in the next couple of months. The big question is, will this infusion of cash come in time to stave off a wave of evictions? Will land, Do landlords, and, and we don't really know this, do landlords, each landlords, and by the way, a lot of housing units in the country are run by very large corporations and including uh, a lot of private equity firms. Do they have a list of tenants they want to get rid of? And is this backlog just going to get jammed into the system regardless of whether or not the money comes? So the bottom line is we have an affordable housing crisis in this country. We had it before we had the pandemic. Will all this money help? Or are we going to see a continuation of the crisis? Thanks to New York Times' Glenn Thrush. When we come back, I'll be joined by CBS News business analyst Jill Schlesinger, the host of Jill on Money. She has what I found to be an interesting take on renting versus buying. Stay with us. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Change Forever. The U.S. economy has certainly gone through major changes over the last year. Sure, there have been some bright spots. The stock market has done well, for example. But there are a lot of people out there in America struggling right now to make ends meet after losing a job due to the pandemic. So first, I asked Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst and host of Jill on Money, her take on the economy now and what it's going to look like a year from now. 
So, Jill, in your view, what is the current state of the economy? Well, the economy has really come roaring back, and it is a combination of factors that has done so. Primarily, we have seen three separate instances of the federal government acting to help Americans and small business owners. And we've really avoided the worst of what could have been a really deeper and more long-lasting recession. So the three efforts, obviously the CARES Act last year, the late December extra money that came through Congress, and then this year's American Rescue Plan, this safety net has been instrumental, truly. I mean, I, I really don't think I've seen anything like this in my decades of being in the business of watching the economy move and watching central banks and watching the federal government. So right now, the economy is has grown uh, in the first quarter at an annualized pace of uh, 6.4%. And, and that's likely to continue throughout the year. You know, after shrinking by three and a half percent last year, this year, we should see the U.S. total economy goods and services uh, actually expand by six or seven percent. Some economists say even more. And that's really good. And all of that comes with an asterisk because we still have 8.4 million fewer jobs than we did before this pandemic recession happened to hit. So we have good progress, but it has to continue. And there are still people that are suffering. Some people, it seems, are digging into their savings to buy real estate because this is a seller's market. But a lot of people aren't selling. So you see people paying over asking. Is that a good idea? I really have to tell you that paying up for an asset just makes my stomach turn personally. So um, I'm not saying that the right price isn't the price at which it trades at because that's what the right price is, right? We, we work on a law of supply and demand. But what I would caution people to do around the housing market is to be careful not to blow through your budget because you're desperate for a house. And so I, I think that we're not necessarily heading to another housing crisis because back in the 2000s, what we saw was banks and lenders just were giving a ton of money out to anyone who would actually have a heartbeat and a pulse. And they said, OK, yeah, yeah, we'll give you money. That's not happening now. We're not seeing excesses in the mortgage market, but we are seeing people who feel desperate to buy a home because there's been the shortage of homes for actually more than a year since before the pandemic. And that can lead you to start to do things like say, oh, my budget was $350,000 for a home, but I really can't get anything for less than four fifty, dollars so I'll just stretch. Now, if you run the numbers and you really can't afford more, sure, go ahead. That's okay. But I worry that people don't realize what that extra money really means. Mortgage rates are still affordable, but a bigger house means bigger utility bills, more upkeep, maintenance. And I especially worry for those folks who are buying those homes and spending that extra money and maybe that means they can't put as much money into their own retirement accounts, which is also really important. So we don't want this house to preclude you from funding the other financial goals in your life. But if your choice is to go over budget or keep renting, what should you do? I say keep renting. I don't know why rent gets such a bad knock in this country. I got to tell you, um, in many markets, renting is still really a very affordable way to go. Now, what happens is you have like this little devil angel conversation with yourself. And usually the the one who's nagging you to buy is your parent. And your parent is saying, you're throwing your money away by renting. Don't rent. 
you know, I, I don't think that that's the case. I think that when you're renting, a better way to consider this is number one, you have access to your money. You've got liquidity so that if you did want to relocate and do something different in your life, you're not tethered to a home. And for older people, sometimes I think that they are uh, so used to owning that they don't even think that renting is an option. But if you're thinking, hey, I own a big house, it's accumulated a lot of value, I'm going to sell it and downsize, maybe renting would be preferable for you because you'll have all of that money accessible to you at the time in your life where you do need money. And, you know, as my mother, who is a realtor for many decades, likes to say, you know, uh, you can't go take your den into the grocery store when you're 83 years old and say, uh, I need to buy stuff. So having access access to that money is incredibly important. And I, I think that even the even though the tax code does favor uh, buyers, I don't think you should be swayed by that necessarily. Again, every decision is a personal one. Running the numbers for you and your family situation is incredibly important. But just think of rent as not throwing your money out the window. It's buying opportunity and flexibility. You know what? That is really interesting because... Uh, you know, I've owned homes, I've owned apartments, and during the crisis, the financial crisis in 2008, 2009, I had this buddy, and I'm not going to mention his name, but he he was a hedge fund guy, uh, and he refused to buy. And I couldn't figure out why, because obviously money was really not an issue for him, but he just didn't see the value at that time, because during that that period, he felt that property was overpriced um, and he just stuck to his guns. And so what you're saying sort of reminds me of him uh, because he was renting. He was renting and I couldn't understand it. So what, what you're saying is, is what you really don't hear a lot of financial types advising people to do to keep renting. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really interesting. I, I, you know, I host a podcast and a radio show. I hear from the listeners all the time. One of the biggest questions I get, especially among millennial listeners is, you know, my parents are killing me. They want me to buy, but I don't want to buy. And, you know, we sort of um, have shackled people with this notion that the only way to financial success is to buy a house. It's not. House prices actually go up with the rate of inflation over the long term. So we have these big bursts where it seems like everything's exploding. Then we have periods where things sort of stay the same. And now we actually know after the great financial crisis that we saw in 2008, 2009, that house values can go down. I cannot tell you that why the the housing, the, the income tax code favors the owners. I don't, I think it's baloney, frankly, but you know, I'll never run for office so I can go out there and say that and make everyone <laughs> mad in the industry, but it's, it's, it's baloney. And, you know, also by the way, the tax code itself and some of those issues tend to be pretty racist because we prevented large swaths of Americans from buying homes and therefore the tax code works against them. But learn to love the idea that renting can really be a, a beautiful way to proceed in your life if it makes sense for you. All right. So let's say someone is listening and of course they're going to follow your advice. They're not going to pay over a sticker for that house. They're going to keep renting. It, where can they put their money uh, to sort of offset what they might be losing mm. to rent. Should they get a bank account somewhere and just look at the interest in the bank account and put it there or invest in the market? If you have your sort of major um, priorities funded, 
That's one thing. You can then start to invest. But what are those major priorities? Again, what we started with this, you got to have an emergency reserve fund. You've got to have six to 12 months of your living expenses in a safe, boring account. So that could be a bank account. It could be a money market account. It could be a high yield savings account. There's a lot of resources online where you can find higher yielding safe investments. But your safe emergency reserve fund should not be at risk in any way. And maybe if you've got extra money, the the really smart idea is that you might have some old credit card bills poking around. Maybe you've got to pay the, that debt off. Maybe the interest rate on your student loans, which is going to kick back in at the end of this year, maybe you've got to address that. And so, you know, one would be, yes, have your emergency reserve, pay down the outstanding debt. And the the third aspect and the third, you know, sort of big priority, I think, is that if you've got extra money, then you want to use your retirement accounts. So if you have a plan through work, you use the 401k or the 403b, and you have as much money taken out as you possibly can. Uh, the limit this year is $19,500 if you're under the age of 50, 26000 if you're above the age of 50. And that's just the easiest way to do it. But maybe you don't have a plan. So then open an IRA or a Roth IRA, six or $7,000, depending on your age. And if you've exhausted all of that and you really have a ton of money left over, then sure, you can create an investment account, a diversified portfolio, hopefully very boring and cheap index funds. And, um, you know, it, it's really been shown that if you, you're really diligent about it, and you do start early, those small amounts do add up over time. You don't have to become a Bitcoin millionaire. I promise you. You can still get where you want to go without going <laughs> on that ride. Well, that's good uh, because Bitcoin is another show altogether. Jill, thank you for your time. It is a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for having me. Coming up, it's always important to get a diversity of opinions when it comes to the economy and tips for how to navigate the current housing market. Here's the question I have for our next guest. Why are homes to buy in such short supply? I didn't mean for that to rhyme, but it did. Stay with us. You're listening to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. Welcome back to America Change Forever. Elise Blink is a syndicated real estate columnist and author of 100 Questions Every First Time Home Buyer Should Ask. While I don't have 100 questions for her, I do have several about the economy and also this housing market. Let's talk about the economy first. The economy is on the mend, wouldn't you say? The economy seems to be mending in quite a fine fashion. It is uh, almost a blockbuster status. Blockbuster status? I think the economy is on a blockbuster track right now. Uh, when you look at the growth rate from the last several quarters, sure, you're coming from an insanely low rate. And it does give you, you know, huge growth numbers that I have to say I've never seen in my life. But uh, just from the experience that so many of the people that are having, you know, people in this country are seeing, you know, a resurgence in the amount of work that they're doing, the income that they have had. 
uh, with government help though, over the last year, um, going out and doing shopping, the, the credit that's come down, the um, amount of buying that's going on, it feels to me like everything is coming together to really propel the economy uh, in a way that we haven't seen in decades. It sounds so rosy, but the last year has been tough for millions of people. The last year has been devastating for millions of people. I would go as far as to say that, you know, in terms of a recession, the way that the pandemic struck the severity and the numbers of people who were affected have been, you know, nothing short of, of the word devastating, I think is the only way you can put it. You know, when you have more than half of all households in the country that lost income, either because of a job loss, a forced furlough, a pay cut that still hasn't been reinstated. You have people who have been unemployed for more than six months, uh, in some cases more than a year at this point. All of that is financially devastating. And I think in about a year, we're going to look back and say, this was an inflection point when enough people got uh, inoculated and vaccinated, and we all started to go out and live our lives again. And so what do you think is driving this healing economy? Is it the fact that more, more people are getting vaccinated and getting out more? I think the people who are choosing to be vaccinated are those who are looking forward to returning to life as normal or whatever passed for normal in their lives. You know, I know for me, when I got my second vaccination and then I passed the 14 days after that, it was like a big sigh of relief. Now, you know, now I could go to a restaurant. Now I can hug my friends and family. Uh, you know, now I can get on an airplane and go do something. But now as we start focus on focusing on talking about the real estate market, the real estate market seems sort of bizarre to me because you look online, you look for homes uh, that might be for sale, and the inventory is almost non-existent. That's correct. So let's talk about why that is. So from about 2009, when the housing crisis really hit home, until about 2015, maybe even 2016, we had a buyer's market in this country, a buyer's market like we've never seen before. And that's because so many people had overbought. They had spent way more than they should have. There were all sorts of customized loan products called pay option arms that let you decide how much you wanted to pay for your mortgage. And what was never fully understood by the buyer was that the excess amount that was really being charged was just being tacked onto the loan. And so you ended up paying interest on interest uh, and owing more than you owed at the beginning of the year. But a lot of those people had lost jobs, had taken big pay cuts, had stepped out of the economy for a number of years, and they couldn't make those payments. And so uh, you saw hedge funds and private equity buying tens of thousands of these homes at steep discounts, deciding to go into the rental business. All of that helped set the stage for what appears now to be this kind of a flip of the market, where we were in a buyer's market until we weren't. And we weren't because while we were building less than, say, 400,000 homes a year, while we were creating over a million uh, new households a year in this country, we just weren't adding to the housing stock. We weren't replacing to the housing stock, the housing stock that was going bad, uh, which housing stock does. And we weren't actually providing new buying opportunities for people. So what happened? Well, the fact that we were adding a million or a million and a half households a year finally caught up with the oversupply. The supply and the demand ratio completely flipped. Interest rates dropped and really have never gone back up. And they continued to stay low and get even lower as the industry tried to recover. 
And so you ended up in a place where you didn't have enough inventory. People who were staying in their homes, homeowners for you know years and years, instead of downsizing, they just refinanced with 2% mortgages or 3% mortgages instead of 4 or 5 or 6% mortgages. Their homes got paid off faster, became cheaper to live there. They didn't see a reason to leave. So even less homes went on the market and the supply got even weaker. Elise Klink, thank you. By the way, Elise has two main websites, thinkblink.com and bestmoneymoves.com. Coming up, that money you save for that dream wedding, might it be better spent on a house right now? Columnist Michelle Singletary and her fun take on how emotions can get the best of us when we set out to find a home. Welcome back to America Change Forever. Washington Post columnist Michelle Singletary has a fun job. She recently reviewed a Netflix show. It's called Marriage or Mortgage. We want a house. I mean, that's the smart decision to make. But Evan, you can just say, I, just say it. Just I, want, I want our wedding to be the best wedding of all the ones that we've been to. Mm, that's where we come in. Do we have a decision? I don't know. Michelle, tell me about this show. So uh, uh, Marriage or Mortgage is really a show about decision-making. So couples have to decide. They, they, the couples themselves have saved up to about $35,000, uh, most of them between twenty-five dollars and $30,000. And they're trying to decide whether they should get use that money to get married and have a reception or use that money as a down payment to buy a house um, and, and that in the Nashville area. And so the show uh, pits them pits a, a real estate person against a wedding planner and they compete for the business for the couples. Uh, <laughs> and that's sort of the premise of the show. There is a show for everything these days. I mean, listen, the premise of this show, it seems pretty self-explanatory to me, but I'm not some young couple ready to get married. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's very popular because, you know, it, it's sort of picture, you know, your dreams against practicality. And so, you know, lots of the couples are like, I've dreamed of this big wedding and, you know, carriage and doves. And, and then, you know, then, but, you know, we could, you know, use this money to put a down payment on a house that begins to build our wealth. So for those of us who are conservative thinking, what, this is like a 10 minute show, you know, <laughs> like why would that's crazy. Right. Uh, and so, but it's not. And, and, and I, when I was asked to review it um, initially, my, my thought was I'm not writing about this crazy show, but then I watched it and I thought that it presented a, a way for people to look at how they make emotional financial decisions. Cause that's really what's mm. happening. And so for example, there's a couple who've been together for, I think it was eight years. They've got two sons living in a two bed room apartment and you know the decision was whether they have this big wedding and reception or you know put money down for the house for them and the boys i'm not going to tell you how it is i'm not going to spoil it for you but okay i'm gonna tell you it's crazy (laughs) (laughs) i mean like what you already that cake has already been cut get the house you know that's what Um, most parents i'm sort of dating myself here but those of us who've been around the block, we would say, hey, save that money for your down payment. But this is a really tough decision for younger couples or at least couples 
who were considering getting married. You know, you would think that those people who have more experience of the belt would have um, would would agree with you. But if you watch the show and listen to some parents, like one couple, the parents gave them the choice. You can use this money for a down payment house or a reception. So there would be no choice if they were my kids. So you <laughs> you could pay for that thirty thousand dollars yourself, or I'm gonna give you this money for home. But it ain't you're not using this for no party. For, well, because you know, that's and, all it is. It's a party. And you because, did, and and you did include your daughter in your review of this show. That's right. My So I, I sat down to watch it with my 26-year-old daughter and my husband, who lasted all of, I think, five minutes before he's like, I'm done. Goodbye. I, I would have been like your husband. <laughs> so my daughter watched it for about 20 minutes. And because she's she's my daughter and I'm a you know financial person, so she said, I can't stand this. And she took the remote and, and fast-forwarded to the end because she wanted to see what the decision was. And when they made the decision, in one case, a uh, couple case to, to, to spend, I don't know, $30,000 on a reception. She just threw her hands up and was like, she was like, I'm done. This is crazy. And she stormed out of the room. It was so funny. It also made me think, I've done my job well. <laughs> <laughs> As a parent and a columnist? That's exactly right. I've taught her well. Uh, and so I was asking her, she says, absolutely not. I would not spend that kind of money on that. And And I will tell folks that, you know, with all things being equal, that they could actually afford the house and the housing payments and the many. So let's just say that that is a given, that the decisions that these were making were so emotional and so impractical and not going to build wealth for them. And I, you know, I plan to show this in classes that I teach about better decision making, because the one thing you don't want to do when you're making a financial decision, especially a major financial decision, is, is add emotion to the, the decision tree. You should never make a financial financial decision based on your emotions because the emotions you're, you know they're not facts um and so I just was I I mean I'm so glad I'm, I'm a reserved person because there were several times I wanted to throw my shoe at the television but all right so when you're talking real estate though sometimes it's hard not to make a decision uh using your emotions you fall in love with a house and in this market people are bidding over list price for houses. So, you know, it's it's hard sometimes to separate, you know, good sound fiscal policy That's from right. what's what's happening in your heart when it comes to real estate. Right. I, I just want to say to anybody who's listening, who's in these markets where you are, you know, frantically overbidding, I just want to say, stop it. Because guess what? There are going to be more houses. They're acting as if there are never going to be another house built or sold. Well, it's I insane. Mean, people you... aren't selling right now. I mean, I, I yeah, get so it. Yeah, so then wait, for goodness sakes. Because that's really what's driving it. People aren't willing to wait and they feel as if this is the only house and, and this is not, I'm not going to be able to do this. Um, or, they're, or they're thinking, you know, the interest rates are super low um, and I better jump on this now. Well, the interest rates are not going to go from 3% to like 15%, right? And so you need to be patient. You need to take the emotions out of it. And most importantly, look at the fundamentals. If you're paying over asking, and that's going to push your budget. So you're going to get in that house. And while you may be able to handle that mortgage, that higher mortgage, um, think about the fact that you may not have built, allowed yourself a cushion. 
So when you are thinking about making these major decisions, you have to make sure that there is a cushion in your budget for when life happens. The pandemic is life happening. The next recession is life happening. You having a kid and deciding, I want to stay home with my child. That's life happening. You getting a divorce, that's life happening. You know, and so you can't go into this thinking, this is the last house, this is my only house for me and make a bad uh, decision. I would say, put a pause at it. If you are being outbid, that means that you need to just sit still and wait for the market to calm down. And then you can go back house shopping. All right. But when is the market going to calm down? Well, no one knows that, of course, but right now it's because of the supply. So there's a, you know, people aren't moving as much because of the pandemic and also that there's been a slowdown in building of homes because of the pandemic. Well, we know we're going to come out of this and the supply chain will get better and homes will be built and people will start moving around. And so it's not like we're going to be in this situation, you know, 20 years from now. And Michelle, I, I understand you've written a new book. Yes, I have a new book that's coming out May 18th. It's called What to Do with Your Money When Crisis Hits. Um, and it's really, it's it's uh, short bites, sort of like heavy appetizers when it comes to personal finance to really help guide people during a time when a crisis hits. Well, that is, uh, sounds like good reading for many of us as we live through this pandemic, learning financial lessons and life lessons as well. Michelle, thank you. Thank you. When we come back, if you've decided to buy or sell, a look at some of the hottest housing markets. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? or the friends you find along the way. Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more, but you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome back to America Change Forever. It's hard to believe, but these days there are long lines for open houses, sometimes 100 people or more. Here's CBS Money Watch reporter Amy Peakey with a look at hot housing markets across the country. Home buying season is in full swing after a year of twists and turns for the U.S. real estate market. So going into the pandemic, the housing market was already really strong. And then the pandemic happened. There was really this dramatic drop in listings and people touring homes, buying homes. It just was at a standstill. But it only took a couple of weeks for the housing market to come roaring back. According to the National Association of Realtors, the demand for real estate lifted prices last year in every major metro area they track, with 88% of those regions experiencing double-digit growth. It used to be before the pandemic that was only in places like the Bay Area or Seattle where buyers were going above and beyond and offering all of these concessions. But now that is so much more widespread. I was just talking to an agent in Atlanta who was telling me that buyers are even offering just like bribes, essentially cash 
to sellers. Among the cities expected to have some of the hottest markets this year include Austin, Phoenix, and Nashville. In Austin, the median listing price for homes jumped almost 26% from February 2020 to the same time this year. There is definitely a, a sense of urgency that hasn't been felt previously. Now it's in absolute frenzy. I mean, you can have 50, 60, 100 people waiting in lines for open houses. You can have 100 offers on homes. With realtor Justin Shepard's help, Helen and David Fain put in an offer for their home in Austin after viewing it virtually. How do you buy a home without actually seeing it? Yeah, it was kind of crazy, to be honest. We purchased a home and I still haven't seen it yet because I've been pregnant all during, like, well, for most of this uh, period of time. And so um, really how we were able to do that remotely was through FaceTime and just having a really great realtor. It's a big, wide open room. The couple offered a few lessons from their experience as buyers in a competitive market. Yeah, so a couple of tips is having an open mind, first and foremost. Um, so being open to different options um, across the market, um, even if it's not like your ideal home, like having the vision of what it can be. Another thing is just like keeping an eye on what your budget is and like what you can make work with inside of that. Because obviously the hot market, there's a lot of excitement. Um, and you can easily start to like justify higher prices, but, but like keeping in mind, like, what are your key criteria? What are you really looking for to get out of the home? Like in our case, like a, a place for raising our family and, and finding where you can make that happen within your budget. It's really easy to get wrapped up in the home buying experience, but don't forget, take the emotion out of it. That is this week's America change forever. You can download previous episodes wherever you download podcasts. My thanks to Paul Woody Woodhall and District Productive. For Gil Gross, I'm Jeff Begays, and that is how America changed forever. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.